we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Good to see you all. Um, I have a couple other things to share with you. We're actually going to take our offering right now because I've been really, really bad at that lately. Um, <laughs> so you notice, like, you idiot, you keep forgetting the offering. So we're going to take our offering. And so um, if you're new, um, you can just let that go by. But uh, if you're part of this church, there's something that we've got actually um, connected to our system. Our whole giving platform is something called text to give and if you are, I mean, this is like a, this is like a total millennial techie thing, but um, man, like if, if this is like a better way for you to give, we just wanted to offer it to you. Uh, some of you love to bring gifts here. Um, some of you do a kind of a monthly thing online. Um, some of you, yeah, just have different ways of doing it. And so um, just want, just a reminder, like, I don't know who gives. I don't know what you give. That's not in my even wheelhouse. So uh, we're just uh, we're just thankful that you're a part of this um, and uh, helping this church go and and kind of worshiping God with your gifts. Um, like I said, we got the Powder Burn crew up there um, and they're having a great time. Um, so just keep praying for them as they're doing their thing. They come back tomorrow. We are in Matthew chapter five. If you're just joining us, we're in a series called Upside Down Kingdom, and what we're doing is we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Um, at this point, uh, we've just stepped into it the last couple of weeks, um, and we're going to continue on with that. Let me, let me just give you a recap. If you missed last week, uh, we talked about two metaphors that Jesus used to talk about what it looks like to be kingdom people, okay? Uh, he used the words, the metaphors of salt and light, and we talked about how salt is to be scattered. It's this idea that you and I just in our lives we're, we're, we're the community of God, but we are scattered into the world. We're at different jobs, different neighborhoods, different carpools and things like that. But that's part of our job is to uh, be uh, flavor, to be preservative, and to be uh, making people thirsty for what the kingdom is. And the other one is light. And uh, Jesus talks about be light of, the, light of the world and this idea that many lights together actually create something that is a, a beacon uh, for the world. And so we talked about those two different metaphors. Today we jump into some of the teaching that Jesus has been preparing this whole time. And it's going to um, hopefully uh, hit us right where we are. But let me just start with Matthew chapter 5 verse 19. Let me just kind of set this up goes like this. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands, and these are the commands that Jesus is about to give, and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Remember that idea of practice and teach. Okay? It's not just know the commands, it's actually to practice them. And for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So let me, let me just say, let me just ask this question. Does that last statement frighten you a little bit? I mean, does it? No. Okay. No. No up here. Anybody else? And frighten you, scare you a little bit? I mean, let's talk about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They were pretty 
good at following the law, right? I mean, let's talk about what those laws were. We, obviously, we have the Ten Commandments, right? We have the Ten Commandments. Uh, we all kind of know at least what those are about. Um, but then there are the Mosaic Law, the, the 613 laws um, of the code uh, that has everything to do with what not to eat and when to do it and, and clean and unclean and all these things, right? And if you actually break down those 613 laws that the Pharisees kept, 248 of them are positive commands. The other 365 are negative commands. So think about one negative command for every day of the year, right? Wouldn't that be a great little desk calendar? Just like a pump you up desk calendar about how to stay away from mold and, you know, things like that. And so, so you've got the, three, the 613 commands, okay? And, and then you tack on to that something more. It's called the Mishnah. Now, the Mishnah is 1,500 other commands and regulations that the Pharisees put together as kind of um, a commentary on the other laws, right? So these are laws that are put into place to keep you from breaking the other 613 laws. These are boundary laws, so to speak. And this is the Mishnah. In fact, you can pick up a copy of the Mishnah if you'd like on Amazon or, I mean, you can, get, you can grab a copy. And it only take you a page or two to realize that the Pharisees completely missed the plot line of what this was all supposed to be. They created these legalistic pathways, right? These, these paths that lost the heart behind the law. And so you have the Torah, the the Genesis through Deuteronomy piece that, that really is this, the theme of that is trust and obey. Remember we talked last week that there's like 70 chapters of story before we get one law. And this idea of God saying trust and obey, trust and obey. And that's the plot line. And so unless you're, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, I mean, you're talking, if you add up all those commands, that's 2,013 commands. So is Jesus saying, unless you have fulfilled or, or kept 2,014, then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven? Is that what he's saying? I mean, so, so as you're sitting there, as you're someone on the hillside listening in to Jesus teach these disciples, that had to be kind of an alarming an alarming statement. But we're going to get into what that means. Because Jesus is really saying, unless you live up to my kind of righteousness, unless you live up to this inside-out version of what I'm talking about, you're going to miss the whole thing. And he gives six examples in the Sermon on the Mount. Six examples of these kind of areas of our lives that uh, he does uh, kind of a two-part look at. Um, he, 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 different examples are, uh, we're going to talk about murder and anger today, but he talks about adultery, divorce, oaths, revenge, and loving your enemies. These pretty big, significant areas of our lives that are affected by our heart. And so each example that Jesus looks at, there's two different versions. He comes at it from a very religious following the law, uh, Mishnah example, okay? And then he comes at it from a kind of a gospel-shaped heart perspective. 
Okay? It comes at it from two different perspectives. All right? So today, we're going to talk about murdering people. So any murderers in the house? I mean, we can talk after. Well, you can talk to Dan, um, Dan afterwards if you're a murderer. Um, so Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, let's get into this. Jesus says this. You have heard it. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject, su- subject to judgment. So here's what Jesus is doing. He's going all the way back to the Ten Commandments. He's going back to the main, the, the main beginning set of laws, and this is a basic human right. Would you agree? Like, we shouldn't murder people. And, and unfortunately, it's obviously not always followed. So he doesn't go back to the Mishnah. He doesn't go back to the uh, 613 laws. He goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments, and he kind of retells this Moses story about murder and facing judgment, and this is a thou shalt not. You shouldn't murder people. But in verse 22, he does something that's a very stylistic, rabbinic way of communicating communicating this idea of, okay, pay attention, I'm about to tell you something. He says, but I tell you, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, this idea of these two words, um, uh, this, this idea of being angry um, at somebody, at a brother or sister, Jesus is actually equating that to homicide, which is pretty intense. And the person, uh, he's saying that just this idea that, that really humanity uh, being created in the image of God, that you and I are image bearers, that everybody you come in contact with is loved by God. There's not, a, there's not a set of eyes that you will meet on this planet that isn't an image bearer of God. And if that's the case, there's not a person at your job, uh, you know, that person at your job that you could do without, your neighbor that, you know, has like 12 sheds and it really bothers you. And there's all these people in your life that frustrate you. If you looking in, the, in their eyes, they are made in the image of God. They are image bearers. In fact, Paul says that they are masterpieces. This idea that God, the great poet, created all of us as masterpieces. Whether we have our lives together or not, we are image bearers. And so in 2000 BC, you've got to understand the context of this, that Jesus is speaking this idea of anger and that you shouldn't call people fools And you shouldn't look down on people as an absolute, I mean, this is unheard of. Because just think of the group of people that are gathered on the hillside. There are people from the Decapolis. There are unclean and clean. There are religious and non-religious. There are people who are sick and carrying disease. And and we talked about what that looked like Um, in that time period. You were actually pushed to the margins. Why? Because there was something wrong with you spiritually. 
that kept you out of a relationship with God. Obviously, God was angry at you at some point. So if you showed up and you were listening to Jesus and you were paralyzed or you were sick or you were a Gentile or you, you know, whatever it was, there was different classifications of people there. And obviously, the religious people are listening in, but they're staying at an arm's length. Why? Because they can't associate. And so what we have here is Jesus laying, uh, uh, you know, the, the playing field is that everybody is created in the image of God in this idea of anger. There's two words here in the Greek, okay? Anger, there's themos, which is like this idea of, um, just give you an illustration, it's like when you strike a match, okay, and it flames up really quick, but then it dies out, okay? It's like that quick burst of anger, okay? Um, but then it goes away, and you're good. You're okay. But then there's orge. And orge is a different word for anger. It's this kind of like uh, when you go camping, and you just keep, uh, and you keep piling wood on a fire, but then it, it kind of goes, the flames go down, but those hot coals, those hot embers, and if you throw a, a stick back on it, it'll flame back up. You know what I'm talking about, right? That's orge. That, that's the kind of anger, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's like under the surface always. It's there. It, you may not see it, but if you throw a stick on the fire, right, it's there. And it's always kind of churning. It's that kind of anger that sinks in deep. It's that kind of anger that, that, uh, of those conversations that you replay those tapes in your head can't believe he said that. I can't believe she, you know, and you replay tapes of your past, of your life. Of, that's that kind of anger. That's orge. Problem is, is that you and I walk around with a certain level of orge anger. We walk around with it and it comes out. It leaks out. It just spills out. It's kind of like that idea of just when something goes wrong, it's, it might be a little thing. You throw the stick on the fire and it... And it usually starts with our mouths. Well, at least it does with me. It starts with our mouths, and we're, we're critical. Uh, we have these critical digs. Maybe there's some slander involved or some gossip, and there's just ways of saying things, some passive-aggressive, you know, things going on. And maybe, maybe you're like me, and the biggest problem you have is sarcasm. People are like, you're not funny, you're mean. And there's just a certain level of, of, of anger involved. And so these words that, that Jesus uses, the raka, which, you know, you're probably like, eh, I can't relate. Um, it's actually, in Aramaic, it's actually a semi-expletive. And it, it actually means um, it devalues someone and insults their intelligence. It's kind of a, uh, you look down on someone's intellect. It's like calling someone stupid or an idiot. The next one, fool, is the Greek word more. And this word is actually is where we get the word moron. But it has more to do with uh, where we get the word morality. So when you, when you say this word, when you say you fool, it actually diminishes your character. It actually says your character is of low regard. And so um, it, you, you don't have enough character to fit into this kind of religious stream. It's, it's pretty brutal. 
And both of these are a way of looking down your nose at somebody else and devaluing them. Valuing yourself and then devaluing somebody else. And in an honor and shame culture, these were very powerful words. And we could all admit that words are lethal, right? I mean, just lethal. I mean, for um, many of you, you, you still bear the scars of words spoken over you. Words are like, words are like bullets lodged in your psyche of things people have said to you, of, of phrases or, or things that people said to you. I've always uh, kind of been uh, around people with children, and, and I'm not good. Uh, I wasn't great with this with our children, but, you know, when you, when you, when you speak something over your child, chances are they're going to live into that. So if you're like, you're just a little devil, um, they're probably going to be little devils, right? Uh, so what you got to do, I mean, as a parent, is just really hard because you're frustrated, you're angry, and sometimes you're just, you're just being a little monster. Well, they're going to be little monsters if you tell them they're little monsters, right? And so what you got to do is you're like, you're so obedient all the time. You listen to me all, you know, and just hoping it works, right? But like words have power. They can shape, they can create. In fact, if you go all the way back to the creation story that God speaks the world into creation, right? He actually doesn't do anything. He doesn't make, wave a wand or anything. It just says God spoke and the world was put together. The world was formed. And then he says he created man and woman in his image and we're created as little creators. And there's something about our speaking in our speech that actually creates life or rips it apart, right? The other day, I mean, we just talk about a downward spiral of, of, of Themos anger turning into Orge anger and how quickly things can kind of form in our heads and spill out of our mouths. The other day, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, but we have two screens working. So, um, but the other day, I know, clap for screens. Um, the other day, uh, a couple of Sundays ago, Super Bowl Sunday, um, it was rough around here. I mean, you probably, you could probably tell um, I was a little agitated. I mean, we had technical problems. We had things going on all over the place. It was just nuts. Nothing was going right. And I was just agitated. And, and then it was Super Bowl Sunday. So, um, of course, like idiots, um, uh, Angela and I, yeah, I just said idiots. Um, and, and, and of course, I called myself that. So we go to Costco <laughs> after church before the Super Bowl, okay? So anybody else like us did the smart thing? Yeah, well, you worked there. No, no, yeah, they're Charlie. Never tried. Okay, so, so we're, at the, we're at Costco, and I'm, I'm already agitated. I've already got some, some, some deep-level orge anger going on. And I grab the cart, and I'm rolling in. And I think I've told some of you about my, my, my inability. See, I think at Costco, sometimes there needs to be like, like, like speed hour, right? Like if you can't keep up a certain pace, um, you, you can't be there, right? <laughs> like I think there needs to be like, because I get frustrated. I'm like, come on. And then there's the guy that like leaves his cart in the middle of the aisle to walk over and get a sample. You know, that guy. And I'm like, bro, I'm just trying to get out of here, right? So it's building in me, right? 
the orge anger is just building and building. And I don't even make it all the way around, okay, to where the, you know, the water is or whatever. And, I, and there's, this, there's this woman who's in my way. And I about lose my mind. Now, I just come from church, okay? And I just was like leading you as people of God. And, and the things I said in my mind about this woman, what she was wearing and what she looked like and how she needed to get out of my way, were horrible. They were absolutely horrible. And, and I'm f- afraid that 20 years from now, they would actually come out. I'm actually afraid. Like uh, there's something in me in my character that has to change. And if those words had been heard by her, I mean, the, they would have broken her. All because I was in a bad mood and I wanted to get home to watch the Super Bowl. And I'll just say that Jesus kind of lays out some of the bad news first. He talks about this idea of anger. And, and in some, I, had, I had a chance to just murder this woman. And he talks about anger and he talks about this idea of not experiencing the kingdom of God. Not entering the kingdom of God. And what do we know about the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is here now. Jesus says it's here. It's among you. It's here. It's near. It's you can, you can taste it, you can, you can experience it now, and it's still to come. It's not all put together yet. There's, we, we see glimpses. Paul says we see through a, a, a dim glass. We, we get a taste of what the kingdom is now. You're not going to experience the kingdom if you act like this. So he gives us the bad news first and this, this idea of the religious heart says that you can be full of, of orge anger and still keep the law, right? I mean, this idea like, thou shalt not murder, check. I still haven't murdered anybody, like physically murdered anybody. So, I mean, in, in all intensive purposes, I'm still good, right? Now, I know what to say at church, I know what to say when I pray out loud. Um, I, I could listen to Caleb all day. I can do all these things that on the outside say, no, you're following the law. You're good and don't murder. Check, haven't murdered. But the gospel-shaped heart says, oh, you're missing it. You've missed the plot line completely. Sure, you followed the law, but you've absolutely missed the plot line. Now, it's funny because when you talk, sometimes you get in a conversation with a very fundamentalist Christian person, and they say, you know, Jesus talks about hell all the time. It's a reality and blah, blah, blah. But here's the thing. Jesus only uh, threatened hell with the religious people. Tax collectors and sinners, he ate dinner with them. And it's something about our approach to following after God's heart that makes us miss the plot line sometimes. So it's kind of like that idea of the, you know, the sandwich board sign guy by Mile High Stadium. Jesus is kind of saying, you need to go to church on Sunday and do your spiel there. 
because there is a, there, there, there's an, a sense in which we've missed the plot line. Now, Jesus tells two stories. He tells, he kind of gives a couple of, of, of metaphors to this, okay? The first one starts in verse 23. And this is how he illustrates it. He says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So we read that and we think that's... Uh, we just kind of have this mind in our, that you just walk down the street and deal with it and come back. Okay, where is Jesus talking right now? Where are we at? Anybody? On a hillside where? In Galilee? I'm helping you out. Okay, maybe we, should, we don't have a map. So Galilee is up, okay? It's on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a three-day journey to Jerusalem. So what Jesus is actually saying, and this is actually very humorous. I think it was really funny at the time. Jesus is saying, so if you leave your house for Passover and, and walk three days with your family to Jerusalem and you fight all the crowds and you, depending on how sinful you were that way, you got a dove or a goat or maybe a bull, maybe it was a bull year, I don't know, but you get your offering and you're preparing your offering and you are at the altar, and you, it says, you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. You know, that word something is actually like the smallest, minute, tiny, little, ridiculous, small thing against you. Jesus says, leave your offering there and walk home. Three days. You've left, you paid for this gift. Okay? Walk all the way home. Go back to Galilee and be reconciled. And then come back. There was a sense of journey and inconvenience and, and just this idea of, I've got to make this right. Before you do anything else, I mean, the big point for Jesus here is make things right. That your offering to me is inconsequential. That you can't bring an offering to me and then have all this other stuff hanging out over here. I talked to a counselor friend of mine who just kind of, we were talking about this idea of reconciliation. And he goes, you know, the problem is with a lot of people that I meet with in counseling is that they want to get the reconciliation over with. They just want to get to the, I'm sorry, will you forgive me part, right? So, I, you know, a lot of us have been hurt in our lives. We have wounds. We have some stuff that it's just, it's just there. And sometimes reconciliation can take a minute and a half. Sometimes it can take decades, right? And so hear that through a couple different lenses, because as we talk about this today, I, I recognize that there are some things that just can't be dealt with with a three-day walk back to town. But this idea of reconciliation, the, the first step in this is confession. And this is, this is that idea of confessing something to somebody without saying, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Without asking for an apology, without giving an apology. This is this idea, here's what I did. Lay it out. I'm going to lay it all out in front of you. I'm going, to be, I'm going to bear it all out. I'm not asking you to forgive me yet. I'm just telling you, I'm just coming to you in honest confession. 
The next step of it is compassion, saying, I know what this has done to you. I know what this um, betrayal has done to you, and this, has, uh, this is still not an apology, okay? So, but this is just, I know how you must feel. You must feel this. You must feel that. You must, I, I, I know what you must feel. Then there's the repentance. And repentance is the actual making steps and changes in your life to not do that again, right? That's what repentance is. It's turning and walking a different direction. You know, it's, it's accountability and it's, it's closing some doors that don't need to be opened again. It's, it's those kinds of things. So someone knows that you're actually making a change in your life. Then there's restitution that's part of this. That's, that's like restoring honor. That's like paying, if it's, it's a financial thing, it's, it's dealing, it's making that right. It's, it's, it's doing whatever you can to make restitution. And the final piece is actually reconciliation. That's the apology part. And that's a long journey. I mean, think of that in terms of leaving something at the altar and walking three days. This is, this is what this looks like. And some, like I said, sometimes it takes 90 seconds, sometimes it takes a decade. But Jesus is saying, whatever possible, make reconciliation happen. And reconciliation is another way of saying make friends, to make friends again. I actually had someone who got really frustrated with all the times we talked about reconciliation and forgiving people that they left our church. It's like, I'm just, I, I can't do that in my life. There's somebody I can't do that with. And so if you're going to keep talking about it, I have to leave. Well, we're going to keep talking about it. This is a kingdom issue. And then there's this second kind of story. And as we kind of wrap things up here, Jesus says this, settle matters quickly with your adversary. So the first one with a brother and sister so brother and sister, people who you love and you care for and things like that, this one's about an adversary in your life, someone who is uh, kind of set against you. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell, truly, I tell you, uh, will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So this idea, this concept is about a debtor's prison. And so back in those days, if you owed people money, um, they could take you to court and get you thrown into prison. And the only way you would get out of prison is if you paid the money. Well, you can't work in prison. So unless somebody came to your advocate, to be an advocate for you and pay your debt, and this is very much the language of, of the cross uh, as well as we get into later on in scripture, but if anybody comes to pay your debt and advocates on your behalf and, 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 and gets you out of debt or prison, you are, you are stuck. So what Jesus is saying, before you get stuck in that situation, before it goes all the way down that road, do everything you can to settle matters quickly. Settle it. Something pops up, settle it. Don't bury it. Don't push it away. Don't, don't log it into a long list of things that you're building a case against somebody. Settle matters quickly, is what Jesus is saying. And, and the point is, is that you don't want your, your themos anger to turn into orge anger. You want to, you want to get it out there fast. 
This idea comes up in Ephesians when Paul talks about not, not letting the sun go down on your anger. Not letting uh, things fester and stew and get bigger and bigger. Remember, he's not giving new laws. Jesus isn't giving new laws here. He's giving examples on how to live a gospel-shaped way. So, but here's the problem. If you're listening to this teaching, you, you're probably, and if you're, you're kind of a, a, a questioner, maybe you're a skeptic, you're probably going, well, wait a second. Didn't Jesus call the Pharisees fools? What do we do with that one, right? Didn't Jesus, you know, get pretty crazy, you know, like the Jesus and the whip, you know, scene that we don't teach that one in Sunday school, right? We don't have the felt board. Do you guys grow up with felt boards in Sunday school class where they have like the, the, like the white Jesus, you know, felt character, which we'll get into that some other time. And, and just this idea, like, like you didn't see that scene with Jesus whipping out a whip, right? You didn't see that one. And so there's these, these difficult things to walk through when it comes to Jesus and his anger. Jesus gets angry. He got angry a lot. So what does that mean? This idea of Godly anger and ungodly anger. This, there's, there's two different versions here. I mean, the, the ungodly anger, this is what we see Jesus have. And his anger is directed towards uh, people or groups of people that are uh, pushing in on um, the oppressed and um, the marginalized. So his anger is directed at somebody who's doing something to offend somebody else. Un- I mean, ungodly anger is the kind of anger that I had in Costco the other day, which is, I'm, my will is not being done. You're infringing now on my will. And so we can look at these two different things and go, okay, we can understand why, why Jesus is making some of these statements and, God, and Jesus is angry and he's got this kind of righteous anger. And in fact, I don't think we're, I think you and I get angry at the wrong things. And, and, you know, I'm not going to say here, hey, don't be angry. No, I want you to be angry. I want you to be angry at the things that are happening towards the weak and the marginalized and the poor and the things that are happening that are unjust. And uh, I want you to be angry at kids who get bullied, you know, kids that are bullying other kids. And and those, those those are the right kinds of anger to have. And so... Hopefully that cleared some of that up a little bit. But let me just ask this. What if there was a different way to live? What if there was a different way to, to look at our life and our anger? What if there was a different way to, to live in relationships? The reality is we all have relationships, and the reality is there is always conflict in relationships. So Jesus says, settle it. Deal with it. Don't compartmentalize it. Gospel-shaped people repent, and they make long journeys, inconvenient, difficult journeys to reconcile, to make friends. Because we're all guilty somewhere in this. Now, if we go back to verse 20 to finish, he says this, uh, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. Remember, we kind of asked that question, like, how can it surpass them? How can it do that? Well, the interesting thing is righteousness, if you were to look at these boxes up here and you're like, finally, he's getting to the props. Um, Okay. A religious way of looking at the law 
would be to look at this big Home Depot box here and just talk about all the laws that I need to keep, okay, to make, uh, to make God happy with me. And, and remember, they're living in what the Pharisees believed was a continued exile. So when Jesus stands up there at the Sermon on the Mount and there's, uh, there's Pharisees there, um, they're concerned because they believe they're still in uh, a partial exile. And the exile means, yes, they're in their own land, but they're not free. Uh, the Romans are occupying it. So somewhere in that exchange, um, God is not happy with us as a people. And if for one day, one day we could all together, everybody follow the law for one day, God would lift the oppression. That was the belief. And so the Pharisees look at their relationship with God and following the law as following the 613 laws and the Mishnah. And they're good. But you, we just talked about how you could still have orge anger and follow the law. What Jesus says is, no, righteousness is much bigger than law following. Righteousness is this idea that it means community life, okay, with all of the relationships in our life. And all of the relationships in our life with God, with others, with ourselves. Some of you have a poor relationship with yourself. You actually have anger towards yourself. You call yourself an idiot. You call yourself a fool. So right relationships with others in our lives, ourselves, and the rest of creation is well-ordered, full of peace, full of shalom, okay? All things flourishing how God designed, that is righteousness. And so when you look over here on this stack of boxes, that means things like, if you want to compartmentalize things, it means like the relationship you have with your boss, like, you cannot have an orge, angry relationship with your boss, Jesus says, and count me out of the equation. Because it's all righteousness. You can't have uh, feelings about your ex or your father-in-law or your father. You can't have this this compartmentalized faith where you show up at church, you listen to Caleb, you give money, you serve, and you say, I've, I've, I've figured it out. I have a, I'm in right relationship with God. And discount all of this over here. Does this make sense? So Jesus is saying, sure, your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees, meaning they're following the law, but they're missing the whole subplot. They're missing the whole plot line. So you're right. Unless your righteousness deals with this, you're missing the kingdom of heaven. How are we doing with that? That's a tough one. Especially if you walk at Costco with me. So this morning, both stories that we heard Settling relationships, settling problems, making things right. They're inseparable from your relationship with God. They're inseparable. And so I want to encourage you. 
what's that little box? You know, I was going to hand out little boxes and be all youth groupy, but I decided not to. Like, what's that little box? What's that, what's that, what's, what's gnawing at you right now? And for some of you, you're like, it's impossible. I can't. They're, they're gone. They've passed away. They've, you know, whatever. I'm not in relationship with anymore. I, I get it. I get it. I think Jesus gets that. But there are some tangible things that you and I can do. We can make the long journey towards some reconciliation. We can make, we can, maybe there's some things that just popped up this week. Husbands and wives or work relationships or friendships that you can settle quickly. Maybe. I want to encourage you to do that because that's what it means to live the kingdom. And if you want to practice it, that's hard work. And you begin to flex those muscles of forgiveness and reconciliation more and more, they begin to grow. And when people see it, they taste some salt. Right? It changes things. When relationships are mended, people notice and they want a part of that. And they want to see that in their life with other people. Guys, that's what it means to live the kingdom. So this morning, I want to pray. And at the end of my prayer, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer because the Lord's Prayer actually asks God to intervene on our behalf and it doesn't leave us out of the equation. When Jesus says, pray these words, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We cannot pray that prayer without making our lives part of how that's done.